Hey, before we start, quick reminder, uh, we have a live show coming up in Chicago later this month, May 15th. Tickets are going fast. Get them soon. Uh, the link to get tickets is in our episode data, wbez.org slash events. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. So since the election, I have tried my darndest to avoid bombarding myself and you, dear listeners, with too much politics. But on this Tuesday, for this episode, for this conversation, I am going to forget about that rule. Today is May 1st. We're officially six months away from the 2018 midterm elections. So we're going to talk with two great guests about the state of our politics and the state of both parties six months out from those midterms. So my guest, Republican strategist Mike Murphy and a friend of his, Mark McKinnon. McKinnon's advised Democrats and Republicans for a long time. If you Google him, though, you might know him most for his trademark big, big cowboy hat. Mark is also the co-host of a show called The Circus on Showtime. It is a political documentary series that just began its third season recently. Every weekly episode of The Circus is this half-hour documentary on the events of the previous week, which is, production-wise, quite the feat. We'll talk about that. We also ask Mark and Mike what they both make of all of these blue wave predictions, this idea that Democrats are going to do very, very well in November. Mike Murphy has a ton of thoughts on this. He is a lifelong Republican. He worked for John Cain, Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney, but he is not supportive of the president at all. All right, that's enough to get you started. Here's me with Mike Murphy, GOP strategist. He was with me in Culver City. And Mark McKinnon, he joined us from D.C. Uh, full disclosure, we talk a fair bit about his cowboy hat. <laughs> Hey, Mike. McKinnon here. Oh, hey. How you doing, man? I'm gaining on it. How are you doing? Oh, slugging away. This is a trifecta for me. Three of my favorite things. NPR, Sam Sanders, and Mike Murphy. <laughs> well, look at you. Very nice. Very nice. Um, so you guys are quite the duo. Mark and Mike. Mike and Mark. It sounds like a DUI law firm. McKinnon <laughs> <laughs> and Murphy. You won't do a day in jail. <laughs> are you wearing the hat? It's hard to do the hat with headphones, but it's right here to my left because I, I lose all my power if I get more than 10 feet away from it. <laughs> I love it. How big is the hat? What's it's the... huge. I, I'm a little tiny guy, but I've got like an enormous giant head. That's the old LBJ hat or whatever, right? The Stetson Open Cattleman. Open Stetson. Or... That's exactly right. How long have you been wearing the hat? Well, you know, I, there's not a picture of me growing. I mean, some people think it's this, you know, just lately affected thing that I do, but I, I there's not a picture of me growing up that I don't have a hat on. I, I, hmm. I wear hats all the time and always have. And my dad was you know, semi-rancher before he got, like, serious and had to really make money and go to work. And he, dads always have these kind of cool closets with all cool dad yeah. stuff, and I'd go in there and look at all the stuff. But the coolest thing in there was his open-road Stetson, and I couldn't wait till I was old enough to get my own. Oh, there you go. I love it. Where in Texas are you from? I'm, I grew up in Colorado, actually, and, and Texas is the last place I thought I was going to grow up or end up in because people in Colorado just don't like Texas. And <laughs> Their loss. I discovered uh, Austin and just yeah. fell in love with it and then okay. ended up there for many, many years and just sold my house there last week, and I'm back to Colorado now. Okay. Mike, where are you from? Detroit, Michigan. Really? Detroit, yeah. Detroit, or outside De Detroit? Detroit, Detroit. Eventually <gasps> the suburbs, but grew up in Detroit, okay. Detroit. Yeah. Okay. Mike Murphy, right. Eminem, and Kid Rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he steals a lot more licks than I do. Um, yeah, no, no. Worked in Michigan a lot. Came out here, worked for Schwarzenegger. I was in D.C. between. Huh. And, uh, from all I've heard, Schwarzenegger, from folks who knew him, was always much smarter in real life than you would get the impression of on TV. He told me a good joke once in the middle of the recall campaign where I we had found old tape of him on like or Griffin or something and he mm -hmm. did a David Niven impersonation mm -hmm. and it wasn't bad. And I said, Arnold, you know, you could kind of clean up the action then a little if you really wanted to. And he said, yeah, well, if I spoke good English, people would expect me to act. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Lowered he expectations. Very, he is a shrewd man. Yeah, yeah. So I want us to talk about two big picture things. One, mark your show. The circus. I want to talk to listeners about that. And two, I want to really talk about with um, with you, Mike, the state of the GOP heading into the midterms. Mm -hmm. So we can do either of those first. Which do you guys prefer? Let's hear about McKinnon's show, man. Okay, a, all right. I'm a loyal viewer. <laughs> I watched the the two episodes from this season last night, and um, I was and it. 
I guess it makes sense, but like you guys got access to everybody. Well, um, the concept behind the show is that it's real-time documentary, and I pitched mm. this show for years. I started pitching it in 2003, and for a lot of reasons, we were lucky it didn't get greenlit until it did, A, because just mm. the circus happened when we did it, and two, the technology needed to catch up because the pitch was easy. People got it right away. It's like, oh, real-time documentary, cool idea. And then the next thing they'd say is, don't think you can do it. And we weren't sure we could do it because what we're doing is we're turning a documentary every week. And mm -hmm. even now, even weekly, by the time we get to Thursday or Friday, the stuff we shoot Monday or Tuesday seems ancient. So, mm. uh, you know, but it's, uh, the, it's the whole purpose of this is Mike and I have been involved in campaigns for most of our adult lives. And we love politics. And and I think I can say for both of us, we, we believe in the nobility of the pursuit, and we, we appreciate people who run for office and trying to make change for better. But there's so much interesting stuff that happens beyond just the principal candidates and the stuff you see on the news. There are just great characters in these orbits, the press secretaries, the cousins, the brothers, the field managers, and uh, there's just great drama and interesting things that happen that's, that's informative, entertaining. And uh, and I think that helps viewer better understand the process and better appreciate it. So you turn these in a week. The first episode of this new season, y'all go to Russia. <laughs> so you went to Russia, spoke with the head of Russia's state news agency. Uh, who else did you speak with that episode? Well, that was talk about crazy dumb luck. Mm -hmm. And look what happened that week that we were there. Every major storyline that week came out of Russia. There was the 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 expulsion of the diplomats from yeah. from from the embassy because of the the poisoning there was the chemical uh, attack in Syria tied to Russia there was the Facebook hearings tied to Russia and of course beneath it all was the Mueller hearings that all started because of Russia and we were I mean I was with Ambassador Huntsman the day that the diplomats were expelled so we talked to you know it was fascinating talking to the heads of those you know the foreign ministry spokeswoman for that example. woman Whoa. she was okay what's God. her name. Maria Zakharova. She was tough. Oh, my God. She was, did you watch it? That's Colonel Zakharova to most of us. Let us go step by step. What about uh, American elections? How Russia did that? Well, uh, the entire United States intelligence community believes that they... But no, that no, no, Russia, no. How? How we did this? How? 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 Well, one way that you did it was to, was to hack into the Democratic National Committee. Was it one way well, or well, several? Well, several. There were several, yeah. That's so one way is... What did we do? Right. <laughs> but the, there was well, one moment that we actually didn't make the show, and I didn't see it until afterwards. I was like, why didn't this make the show? We put it out as a special thing where John Heilman, my co-host, said something about, um, you know, and then Donald Trump was elected, and she says, thank God. He's, he's the president of the United States. So in, in yesterday Thanks he... God. And yesterday he sent a tweet. Did you say thank God? And John turns to him and says, did you just say thank God? Yeah, thanks God. Why is that? Um, that he's American president. Why? <laughs> Yeah. Why? I mean, you, you should just express some, some gratitude to the Almighty for the fact that Donald Trump's president. I'm just curious why you say that. Uh, because you admit the fact that he's an American president. Because and then she, like, so totally dissembled. She said, no, no, I, I didn't mean that. I was saying it's good you have a democratic process. But you could tell they love, they love Trump. And so, I mean, like, this is the question I always ask. You want to hear from those people because they're principal players. But you know as soon as you give them a mic... They're probably telling you a thing that's either half true or a lie. How do you balance that? Yeah. Do you not talk to them, or how do you? Well, talk I think to them? You, it's, both you guys. it's important to to hear and see it firsthand. But at the same time, you know, John went to, up, took the train up to Saint Petersburg and talked to a, a woman who'd infiltrated the Russian troll farms. Yeah. And incredibly courageous that this woman would speak to us on camera. And then when John talked to Maria Zakharova and, you know, kind of said, well, listen, we have information from these Russian trolls. And, and then she immediately said, what's her name? What's her name? That she is committing a crime. And I'm now asking I'm asking you, what should we do with this I'm, information? Give us the name. I'm, I know this may seem a little strange to you, but I'm a journalist. I'm not in the business of law enforcement. And I'm not a Russian. So because she's saying it's a crime if she's talking. It's a crime. And it was like a little chilling. Yeah, people are pretty smart. They can kind of see when a Russian propaganda wizard is kind of wiggling in the seat. or Unless it's on Facebook. Yeah, well, true, true. <laughs> because video is a communications medium. Yeah. has a lot more subtext. True. Because you have the power of your eyes, mm -hmm. not just reading text. And mm -hmm. uh, that you could, people can read politicians, and yeah. they can tell when they're 
pitching something or when maybe they're in an uncomfortable position. And that's the power of the documentary form. And I think the circus is a good example of how it can work. You yeah. can, you can, you could tell those Russians were oh, well, going to have a meeting after the interview about what they thought they got away <laughs> yeah. with and what they're in trouble oh, with and yeah. how mad and, their boss would be. I don't know yeah. if you noticed when we talked to the head of RT Russia today, they insisted mm-hmm. that they had cameras recording us recording them. Right. So you know they immediately <laughs> went to like, send it to Putin. So then, all right, larger picture question. Everyone is saying nowadays, well, we're entering a new Cold War. You know, the expulsion of these diplomats, the rhetoric between America and Russia, Russia's continuing attempts to influence all kinds of places all over the world. Does any part of what's happening right now feel in any way like a return to some Cold War stuff? Well, yeah, I'm so old. I'm an old Cold War guy. I came out of George Summers scenario studies in the early 80s. Uh-huh. And uh, my the guy screaming at me in Russian every morning was a Russian Air Force defector, Colonel Pirogov. <laughs> And uh, so anyway, it does. But this is the rhythms of hostility. Mm. That's why they call it a cold war, not a hot war. And we're not way up to cold war levels, but they're they're acting up and we're sending conflicting signals because the old playbook is to put the squeeze on them when they act up. And Trump is not doing that. His team wants to. Part of his team does. The, The Senate does. So it's more chaotic, and the Russians like chaos because it's the only superpower. We're the big metronome beat. Mm. And when we start ticking irregularly and and sending weird messages, Mm -hmm. it is an opportunity for our geopolitical opponents. So I think Putin is kind of running the table right now, though we have the ability, if we get our act together, to put the squeeze on and put them right back in the box. They're still a third-rate power, essentially. They just have a big army and a a real talent for destabilization, particularly in what they think their sphere of influence is. And it's amazing. Given the, you know the limited you know resources that they actually have now that they've leveraged themselves into the geopolitical yep. equation like they have, and that's all because of Putin. But to your question earlier, Sam, I, I was with Ambassador Huntsman the day the diplomats were thrown out, and mm-hmm. it was it was chilling because you know that was a third of his workforce, and they targeted all the key people, chief of staff, and he'd just seen them all off on buses, so it was a pretty mm-hmm. emotional day for him. Mm. But he's really good at diplomacy, and mm-hmm. you know, as 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 tough a day as that was, you really got a sense that he was the right guy in the right place, at the right time. And but one of the chilling things that he said to your question about is this a new Cold War? Mm. He said, "Well, listen, I'll just tell you. Historically speaking, in an historical context, the only other time in history where there's been this kind of a muscular diplomatic response among 29 nations, the end result was war." Uh, now he went on to say that you know he thinks in this case. And I think from uh, he didn't say this, but I think from all the other signals that I've been getting then and since then is that Russia has kind of overplayed their hand. And I think the ambassador thinks there are some diplomatic uh, back doors to, to de-escalate this situation. And yeah. I think that's probably what will happen because, as Mike said, you know, Russia is just trying to provoke and destabilize. And I don't think they really want an actual confrontation. And people forget that Putin has his own politics to worry about. And mm. so when he extends a little bit, he can have his own internal vulnerabilities. We sometimes believe the cartoon that he's the all-powerful czar or the mm-hmm. Stalin-like super leader. And he's not in mm. the, as strong a position as those yeah. guys. So, you know, the wheels will turn a little bit. Yeah. It's, 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 it's something, though, because, like, you read these headlines and you hear about these diplomats. You read about Syria and you look at the players involved in there and say, oh, this is way too messy. This feels like I could really, really get... Bad. Well, the danger is that the president, you know, I've been a Trump critic for a long time and I remain there. You're a never Trumper, no? We, uh, yeah, from day one. Okay. I'm a, I'm a hell no never Trumper. But still a Republican. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hanging in to fight the internal war, even though we feel a little outnumbered these days. But the, the thing to remember in these Cold War deals, where they get in trouble is where the Russians confuse our signals. Hmm. Uh, well, so we're sending they, confusing signals yes, right now. that's the danger part. And that's okay. a mistake the president, I think, has made. And the staff around him, the professional staff, and people who care about this in the Congress are trying to clarify a bit. Because yeah. then they think, hey, it's okay to go do this. Yeah. No, it's not. And then we react back more. And then, then they get caught and you get into these escalations that could be trouble, particularly near the Baltics or in the old, mm-hmm. uh, the old uh, Ukraine. But this is the thing with Congress, at least with Trump's own party. For every member of Congress in the GOP that hymns and haws and shouts about what Trump might be saying or doing, probably 102% of the time they end up acquiescing. Well, yeah, privately they're much bigger critics. 
publicly, politics is a marketplace, and they're terrified of their primary voters, where the president has three out of four Republicans behind him yeah. now, today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if we lose the House, that'll be the story next year. But right now, the reality of politics is, among the base who pick who gets to be the Republican candidate in most places, the president is still popular. That's the only place. He's kind of backed into a cul-de-sac of the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. But that's the place that counts to move Republicans around, elected yeah. Republicans, yeah. or at least most of them. Yeah. I want us to talk more about these midterm uh Numbers and figures and chances, but I want to ask you a little bit, Mark, about episode two briefly. Sure. Of this season. Uh, episode two, you are literally riding around town with Stormy Daniels <laughs> and her lawyer. How did you get that? Y'all are literally in the car with them like half the time. Yeah, interesting because Russia was a little more difficult to anticipate and we just got lucky. But this week, I mean, the second episode was easier to anticipate. We looked at it and said, this is, there's going to be a lot of legal stuff going down mm-hmm. next week, including mm-hmm. this big thing Monday with Michael Avenatti and Stormy Daniels at the New York courthouse. And we knew that was going to be just a crazy scene. And and we were able to talk to Avenatti, who's, you know, not press shy. And so we... <laughs> you don't say. He's been around the block. He's a provocateur. He's a performance artist. And so we knew that that would be interesting. And then, we, you know, part part of good doc stuff is having great access. And he gave us unbelievable access. It reminds me of the old great hack uh, director joke about, can we get Vanderveen only if we ask him? Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it's in his interest. Exactly. You want that press. As Mark says, he's a performance yeah, artist. Exactly yeah, exactly right. Yeah, but, totally. but I will say that, you know, we shot a lot of them over the course of the week. And I began to really worry that it was going to be way too much Avenatti. Well, that's not your problem. That's that's the producers and the editors. You well, but, the but that's tape, part right? of my role too. And I'm, okay. I sit there in the edit during the weekend, and we're trying to make decisions about yeah. you know how much is too much. And I was kind of arguing to lift him out of the middle of the episode. And but by the end of the by at the end of the day, I kind of waved the white flag when I realized that you know, like for any good storytelling, he provided the character. backbone of the story for the week. He has skills because he has the rare but impressive talent that really good showboat lawyers have, <laughs> which is keep a straight face while just while saying arguing. I mean, Basically, this is a contract dispute of a porn star, but he plays it like it's the Magna Carta. Yeah. 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 This is like the most serious issue oh, yeah. of our time. Yeah, and, and he, he's great at it. And he yeah. keeps that straight face and moves it forward. Yeah. And, you know, he was a political operative earlier in his life. Yeah. He worked hmm. for Rahm Emanuel in the opposition research world. So he knows hmm. the law. He's a good litigator. But he oh, knows. he's to- he now. You know what? And it makes perfect sense. He is so Rami. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, he knows how to feed the beast, give yeah. him a story, be a character. He's better at it than she is, even though she's the actress. Yeah. But um, and he's done well by her because huh. he's made well, it. Well, and he knows how to top. punch a line. You know, like he turned yeah. to John and says, "You know, but this is really kind of." A game. He says, "John, it's not a game." It's the game. It's the game. Yeah. It's Nuremberg. It's not about <laughs> yeah, a porn star. Yeah. So, you know, it, in terms of the two episodes of this season so far, this one, two with Stormy Daniels and her lawyer, felt more circusy than the Russia yes. one, perhaps? It, yeah, it was totally yeah. circusy. That was a, I mean, that Monday moment, especially when she comes out of the car and all the camera people are falling all over each other and then... You know, she's getting in the car and Avenatti's starting to do his thing and a barrier, barricade falls over and clanks. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. we call it kind of shooting a dirty scene. And it was a really dirty scene. And that, <laughs> that's what makes good circus stuff. Yeah. So kind of a bigger philosophical question about this. I mean, I think part of what's happening with your show um, is happening in journalism right now. There is a there's a certain circus element to our coverage of politics in large part because of who is in the white house right but i guess my question for you is do we um in this industry doing documentary work or um, like work in newsrooms do we ever fall into the traps of playing into that circus element and kind of feeding the the circus beast like does our coverage of the circus as a circus sometimes encourage the circus performers to yeah. act more circus like well it's a great question uh, and, and to your point and for both of you guys if there'd been a pres- if there'd been president clinton there would have been no season two of the circus i'm pretty mm. sure that everybody would hit mm. the snooze button and uh you know woken up four years later I, I, listen i think that's true and it kind of you know escalates the kind of circusy you know thing that we're covering but that is the thing that we're covering and uh and I will say that, well, the interesting thing about Trump more broadly and the reason the show works is that, uh, you know, good drama usually includes great characters, 
uh, conflict and surprise, and we get that every day with with the president. And so, yeah. that, I mean, he's he's out there creating the drama. If the drama wasn't out there, you know, we can't we can't create drama that's not yeah. there. So it's there already. So everybody else is doing news that's coming at them every minute of the day with this presidency, and at least we get a, a chance to kind of pull back the lens and try and go deeper on some issues and thematics like Russia or like the lawyers or next week on just kind of Trump and the world stage. And at least we get a week to kind of net it out and think about it more thematically and its deeper implications. Yeah, I think the circus is kind of special because it's very immediate, but it also steps back a little and lets the viewer, and this is the power of documentary filmmaking, see the sausage grinding going on, the screaming media horde, what the roadshow looks like. I I would agree with your criticism on the larger world, particularly at cable news. And I I work there, but um, luckily I'm an opinion journalist, so I just (laughs) mouth off and they get rid of me. (laughs) But the media, both print and cable TV and mm-hmm. all television, has decided to cover politics like sports. It's all scorekeeping, coaches, poll, and conflict. And like sports, but also like reality show. Well, no. Now we have reality show drama because we have a president who doesn't operate by any of the old rules of and shame. It came from reality govern. shows. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the problems is, particularly in, during the campaign season, is that it is in the economic interest of people selling clicks or selling mm-hmm. ratings or selling sticky cable fees to cover everything every day in politics is the biggest thing of the year. Mm-hmm. So everything is the It's all breaking news. All trivia is breaking news. Everything, the most meaningless stuff is massively important. And so it becomes this noise cloud. And if, if you're a tribal politics member, like most of our primary voters mm-hmm. are on both sides, you tune into the channel that tells you you're already right and you root for it. Mm-hmm. And it's been a pretty good business model, but I don't mm-hmm. know if the quality of coverage has gone up. I would say it's gone down, even though the quality of my health has gone down. It's, well, it's so yeah, stressful. You can't watch no, no, it. It's no, so it's stressful. More. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. So culturally, it is not, in my view, anyway, a sign of strength. But it it is kind of where we've gone. And the big question for me is post-Trump, will there be a reformation and a rejection of it? Will there be a cyclical change? Or will we have a bunch of Trump imitators on both sides? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess so, like... You're 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 in the industry. Like, what is what are one or two fixes to kind of break that cycle of bad coverage? W- well, would the, it be not never covering the tweets again? Would it be? It's funny. What is it? All, all my progressive friends say, "Well, we got to fix it. These idiot voters. We got to take away their Twitter, or we got to put controls on it, or we got to require all newspapers to do front page broccoli stories about the problems with the federal deficit." doesn't work that way. People pick what they want and they Mm. vote for it or reward it, but it does move in cycles. Okay. I'm of the theory, and a lot of people in our business are, that people often vote every four years for what they think they didn't get the last time. Yeah. So there's kind of an oscillation to it. And so will they vote for what they think they didn't get with the president, which would be a return to kind of honorable competence and some of the old rules of gravity? Or Um, quiet. Yeah, just, no, just grown-up stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. Or will they reward and we'll have an auction to see who can be the most outrageous person that shame doesn't work on in the White House, uh, tweeting insults every day? You know, yeah. that's going to be the big question next time, and it'll people will decide. They want a reality show presidency, and they want Kim Kardashian or the, you know, um, some character from what we call in Hollywood a pre-aware title. Somebody credentialed one, one from outside thing, politics, they can get it. Yeah. One thing that I'll say is that you know I thought that. Uh, because campaigns are just so interesting and colorful that we'd be one and done. I didn't know that there would be any additional seasons of the, of the circus except for maybe t- you know the next election in 2020. Mm-hmm. And one week into the administration, the president of Showtime called up and said, guys, get back out there. The, you know, the circus you know, hadn't stopped. A lot stopped. going on. In a lot of ways, yeah. it's just getting started. And I was skeptical. I said, you know, I don't know. Washington's you know, kind of boring and static, and, uh, and I'm not sure. And I, I couldn't have been more wrong. In a lot of ways, it's been... I don't know, I wouldn't say better, but uh, it's been compelling in its own way because people are so interested and dialed in in ways that they never have been before on either side of the political aisle, on both sides. Supporters and opponents are all transfixed by what's going on, and they there's like a national civics lesson going on. And and, and but, but because it's kind of confusing and new, they also want tour guides to kind of help mm-hmm. them understand it and kind of parse it out for them. Yeah. Uh, I want us to talk about midterms. But I have mm-hmm. to ask one more question about the circus. Um, there was one big difference between the first season and this one, Mark. You noticed that. I did. Mark Halperin is gone yep. from this season. Um, yeah, we had our little our own Me Too moment. Yeah. How much do you talk about that? And what can you say about it? Well, it, it was, it was a, it, when it happened, it was one of the biggest, you know, 
uh, news stories of the day. Of, uh, it was kind of in the early part of that swing, and Mark got taken down in spectacular fashion, fired on you know every you know he, he was a, a, a and he had been everywhere, everywhere. I mean, he had a book was, coming out, he had a movie yeah. on the book, he, he had was on show, MSNBC, he had all the MSNBC. Time. Fired overnight, all those, all those projects. And these were accusations uh, of sexual assault and harassment during right. his time at ABC News about more than a decade ago. Correct. Did you know of any of this happening on the circus? Absolutely not. No, I never saw any any sign of it. And uh, uh, so uh, it was unfortunate. It was certainly the right thing for Showtime to do. Uh, there was no other course of action that, w- that would have been responsible. Um, but but interestingly, we had been talking to Alex Wagner for a long time before that about coming onto the show as a co-host. I Who's never wanted the show to be three old white guys. I don't and, think you're that old. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be good to have somebody born in the last half century anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Alex had been a guest on the show a couple of times, and from the moment she walked on the set, I was like, she's the one. So, listen, it was an unfortunate thing that happened, uh, but we're glad to have Alex on, and she's n- different, and she's, she she's terrific. Yeah, I, I, I definitely enjoyed seeing her in the show. Did you, when the Mark Halperin stuff happened, did you consider just shutting the show down, or were you always going to well, keep on with it? Well, you know, when it happened, you kind of, I felt a little bit of an existential chill momentarily, but then very quickly, you know, everybody involved, and particularly Showtime, you know, they, they recognize that the power of this show is not the talent, it's the concept. Mm. You know, one of the things I keep seeing and reading about now is how long these men that have been taken down with allegations, how long they have to be in the wilderness. When do they get to redeem themselves? When do they get their jobs back? Would you ever imagine a day in which you feel comfortable working with Mark Halperin again? And if so, when? Uh, gosh, boy, that's a, that's a good and a tough question. Um, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd hope that, uh, that we live in a world where redemption is possible, that people can earn their way back. But, you know, I think that... Because uh, a lot of folks say they should be gone because they're bad for the system, right? Like the, like they make the waters toxic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for, for Mark to find a job on television again. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's a reality in the current environment that we're in. And by the way, you know, I, this pendulum swung hard and fast but it was way overdue and uh i'm glad it happened uh i'm i'm, I'm sad that it took down a, you know a colleague but but you know his actions were indefensible and so uh you know he suffered from a result of his own actions and there were real victims there so so uh, like 10 20 years from now he's <laughs> redeemed or like well, well, I, I, told, time a, on it. I told a knock-knock joke in the 70s it took me 30 years so we're we'll seeing <laughs> i'm just trying to lighten the mood of a joke here a little bit. I, my friend's in a tough situation because yeah. it was a tough thing for the show but it you know it, it didn't happen to mark mark happened to mark with some bad decisions and yeah. there should be consequences i'm afraid All right, time for a break. When we come back, Mike and Mark give us their predictions for the midterms. And we talk about just how big a blue wave might be coming. All right, BRB. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash minute. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I'm Scott Detrow. There is so much political news to follow these days, but you don't have to keep up with all of it. You just have to keep up with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. You can find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers from Embedded. Bill Spencer works at a coal mine in Kentucky. And when I start to ask him about a future without coal, he knows what I'm going to say. So if coal goes out, I'm done for it. Coal Stories on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about politics. I've, you know, since the election of Donald Trump, I, for a while, stopped asking uh, for political predictions. (laughs) But now I'm kind of getting back into that. So I want you both to give me your predictions for these midterms come November. Well, I was wrong about Trump. I thought he'd lose by about three and a half million votes. He and, uh, did. <laughs> uh, this guy. Well, that, uh, no, that's what, but I was wrong. A college of Electricians, they uh, foiled me once again. Uh, but I'm sticking to, I'm a revert to mean guy. I've been doing this a long time. The recipe to lose a midterm 
is really unpopular president, really unpopular party. And while we don't know what happens, if you take a look at the special elections we've had, there's a real signal there. You take a look at democratic intensity of voters who normally don't vote in the off year, which has smaller participation, they're showing up in special elections. So this is everything that a really bad year looks like, but we have to wait and count the votes. So if I have to predict, I think we're going to lose the House. I think we're going to hold the Senate. And what does that change as far as the way Trump's Washington operates? Well, it'll be a whole new world for him because he won't have a majority in the House, so he'll lose control of the budget process. The Democrats who, you know, some of these old Dems who've been there forever in the minority are going to pop out now into the majority and have some real power. So the Bernie wing of the party is going to have even more of a comeback. Uh, and they never so left. We, right. And, and now, now they're going to have adult tools and razors and the ability to subpoena people. So as a conservative... I, I, ideologically, I think it's going to be a real problem, but we brought this storm on ourselves. You say we. The president, the you Republicans. Still, okay. You still consider it's, I mean, like, because yeah, no, you I'm, could say it wasn't me. I didn't vote for that guy. Yeah, but I'm part of the party and I've been a okay. critic of this. So w- with that comes the responsibility uh, if there's rubble and disaster to help rebuild the thing um, along the principles that I as a Republican believe in, which are not aligned very much with what the president does. Okay. Mark predictions midterms November. Well, uh, sorry about that. Uh, Was it the hat? (laughs) (laughs) Mike touched on it, but the important thing is the enthusiasm gap. And the interesting thing is that some numbers that I saw just recently kind of tell the story. In 2010, in that election, and you remember what happened then, uh, when you ask Republicans uh, what percentage of them were enthusiastic about voting that November, 69% were and 27% of Democrats were. Today, it's completely flipped. 69% of Democrats are excited about voting and 27% of Republicans are. If that number holds, the Democrats will take the House. And the greater problem for President Trump then is that is existential because the House can proceed with impeachment. Right. Do you think that the House would actually do it? I mean, I have I have yeah. seen, you know, th- th- there was there was this moment when it seemed the Democrats were going to show the most backbone they had yet in the Trump administration over DACA. And then they kind of didn't. I, I think they should have. I think they should have pushed harder with DACA. But, you know, I don't think they should proceed with impeachment unless there are charges to follow up on. I think it'd be, you know, a Democratic suicide to sort of, you know, jump at the the glittering object than the easy one, unless there's real you know, substance there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think they'll be restricted from that once the House uh, is filled with Democrats. Yeah, yeah, Mark's totally right. They're going to have a lot of political power they don't have now if, if they get they the get House. Yeah. And they can do investigations. They can move on impeachment if they see a reason to. Their internal politics in their primary will be screaming for impeachment. And so mm-hmm. they'll make those calculations. But if you're looking for backbone in politicians, the best rule I know is to avoid the election year. Yeah. Right huh. now, they're just trying to run up the score to have more power to then do whatever, which may include a lot of what Democratic activists would call backbone huh. next year once they have the gavel. Yeah. Because there's only one mark-to-market event in politics. Everything is talk except Election Day. That's and that's the when truth. the real power changes that's and then the real things change. And the People problem, forgot that, I think. And, and the it's problem elections. is that, that if, yeah. there isn't, if there aren't charges out there of something that's been laid out that to, right. you know, significantly, then, then you know, voters who you know, really look at things that they care about you know, are going to be uh, disappointed that Democrats aren't paying attention to the issues that they really care about. Uh, there's a good chance that Mueller ends his investigation finds out who knows what, but doesn't charge, only issues a report. What happens then? Well, the president will declare another military parade and say that he's been totally exonerated. In the old days when shame mattered, being close to people who act badly in a presidency would be enough. And there'd be a, you know, steamy editorials and criticism and the president would feel honor bound to do something about it. But starting with the Clinton scandals and then being put on steroids in the Trump era, that shame weapon that used to kind of govern political behavior is all gone. And so I don't think the president is a guy who gets out of the White House unless his family or himself is under massive Mm. legal jeopardy. Now, my own crazy scenario is that if we do lose the House and the party starts rethinking its allegiance to Trump out of their own survival instincts because the Senate races don't look so great in 2020 and start to distance from him, he will react poorly to that. And he'll start making noises about running his own party. I don't need any of these. The, swamp. the XFL of politics. Right, right. I don't need any of these guys, And he, which is what he did during the campaign. He kind of ran against everybody. He's yeah. comfortable with that. So he'll go back to that comfort zone. 
And eventually, I don't think he'll run for re-election. But, but the idea mm. that Mueller, like, snaps the cuffs on him and, that you know, he happen. cries and walks that is away. A, no, 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 no. That's an MSNBC pipe dream. Uh, <laughs> by the way, um, I have Fine two, employer. Uh, two things on that. One, one is it was really interesting that I got to talk to Sally Yates uh, for this last episode. And yeah. She talked about Robert Mueller. And Former acting attorney general. What she said was, you know, listen, the one thing about Mueller is if there's a there, there, he'll find it. But if there's not a there, there, he won't make it up. Yeah. Which is really important. Yeah. And well, the thing I'll say about 2020 is a little different than Mike's scenario. I think that Trump will run for re-election almost under any circumstance because he just doesn't want to go out and be perceived a as a thing, loser. Right? It's just a psyche thing. And if that happens, to Mike's point about his strength in the primaries, he will he will run the boards in the primaries. Somebody may run against him just for the attention, but he'll kill in the primaries. And I think that it's very likely the Democrats will nominate somebody progressive which means that there's a huge opening for somebody to run an establishment Republican, you know, pick them, uh, Kasich, Corker, kind of go down. Haley. Yeah, go down the list and then maybe even do a dream ticket kind of thing where they put a D as the VP. And then you've got, then I think you've got a potential scenario See, for 30, 30, 30. And but isn't that the thing? It's a dream. It's a dream. Remember Bloomberg was going to run and this one was going to run. Like when is the last time there was an actual well, viable third party Part candidate? of the problem is, and one, I... Right now, if Trump were in the Republican primaries, he'd crush. I'm curious what he's going to look like in 19 in the Republican Well, because you were writing that he could be primary in his party. Well, I said he could if we get wiped out and that changes his numbers, which is what happened to the other incumbent presidents who had primary challenges, though ultimately they won them. It's hard to primary an incumbent president. But if Trump does have the nomination damaged or not Mm -hmm. uh, and is wounded— the general election numbers are going to look so good for the D's, even though I like Mark's strategy and I'd advise it if I were on the Democratic side. I, my guess is they'll be greedy about it. We can run the table now. We don't have to make any concessions. Mm-hmm. There will be, I think, and you know we're guessing at this point, a big national hunger for competence and kind of an anti-Trump and backing off on the Democratic partisan you know, fury-eyed stuff would be a smart move to attract those voters against Trump in a future election. But that's not the norms of politics. It's tribal. People dig in. Yeah. As a Republican who is not satisfied with the current leader of your party, describe your emotional and mental state right now (laughs) as a long-suffering Republican. Well, I find uh, a lot of therapy here on NPR. (laughs) You know, That's what I'm here for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I got a low hourly rate. No, no, I, I, I complain about uh, everywhere but where primary voters tune in. Uh, <laughs> no, no, look, I've been in this business a long time, and I'm a conservative. I am a right-wing nut. But it is this is not the conservatism that I decided to spend 30 years of my life living out of holiday inns to help people win Republican mm. campaigns. I'm not for that. So then why are you still there? Um, because, leave, right? No, no, I, I, I don't want labor in the 70s, so I can't turn into a Bernie Sanders identity politics socialist. Okay. Um, and they've got a lot of their own problems. So I'm, I'm going to stay. You know, there are very few of us here in this anti-Trump thing, at least publicly. But, <laughs> you know, it only took Lenin 15 guys to knock over Russia. So with time, uh, we're going to fight the good fight. And maybe we, <laughs> judging from what my partners say about our business in Washington, so far not so good. <laughs> But but it's a noble cause, and I didn't join this thing to be comfortable. And uh, the Trump decision for me is incredibly easy, and I'm surprised it's not easier for more Republicans. Why but do you think it— It's a careerist business. People don't want primary voters to fire them. Um, and so they're going along till I believe there's going to be a big inflection point if we have catastrophic losses. And then that might be the opportunity to have a real debate and a real battle in the party about what we are, yeah. Trump versus something better. One thing that consistently and always, I don't even know the right word, befuddles me. I, I followed multiple candidates over the course of the campaign and spent a good amount of time detailing Ted Cruz. And Donald Trump called Ted Cruz and his wife and his daddy everything but a child of God. And now, just the other week, Ted Cruz writes this glowing spread on Trump in Time's 100 Most Influential People issue. And Republican after Republican after Republican in the House, in the Senate, who decried this man as the worst thing ever, capitulate and capitulate and capitulate. You are someone who ran the Straight Talk Express for John McCain. What is it like to see such a political... I don't want to say spinelessness, 
but you don't have any more questions about Halperin for McKinnon because we I, could go back. I know, I know. I <laughs> now know. it's my turn. Aren't you surprised? I am, by I am angry and disappointed. Of course I am. I, I like to joke that you know these guys take a federal paycheck and nobody is asking them to land on Anzio Beach. Yeah. Now the defense that they make, I hear all the time, is Mike, Mike, ignore the juvenile tweets and the horrible public statements. Because he doesn't do the crazy stuff. He, we have good judges now that he's nominating, good conservatives. We got a big tax cut. The president has turned the military loose uh, in Syria. So take the output of the machine and discard the horrible offensive things he says and does. But it's all output of the machine. Well, yeah. My, my point would yeah. be the things he does are part of what defines the presidency for him, and I think it's a corrosive cost on the whole country. So, you know, but hey, I, um, all, it's a party democracy, and I think that things will change. And I mean, look, I, the brave feminist of the Democratic Party all had laryngitis during the Clinton scandals. You're right I wonder about what that. happened. Where, where was the You're honorable right speech that. there? Well, this you is follow not the leader, a new, you're saying. It's the nature of politics to follow the leader and to plot quietly. But if he gets in a weaker position where pragmatically, existentially, the survival of the party starts being really in doubt, not some theory about the midterms, but we have 35 congressmen stacked up, not coming back. Thousands of Republican professional staff lose their jobs. And the Democrats start taking over the policy process in the House. That may have consequences for him within the party. And then we'll see. I just think people like Mitt Romney, who gave that speech telling everyone how bad he thought Donald Trump was. Yeah, but I would say this, and, you know, Mark and I, we've been around politics a long time. All my Democratic and all my progressive friends want an Aaron Sorkin movie, where the Republicans all put on their own military uniforms, led by John McCain, march to the White House and arrest Donald Trump. And <laughs> give a big speech. <laughs> so and then, then the Democrats run the world. What Mitt Romney is about to do is get elected to the U.S. Senate, where he will be a senior force in the Republican Party. That outcome, he's still Mitt Romney. He still believes what he believes. That outcome is not a bad outcome you think for win? people who care about Republicans believing mm-hmm. what built the party mm-hmm. rather than the current populism. Mm-hmm. I think he's highly likely to because run, but it'll be up to the voters Because he was second in this first little contest, Yeah, right? but the, the way it works is Utah has a convention, which is a lot of fun for the 4,000 hobbyists who go to the convention. <laughs> and often the rule of the convention is if you're not – if you're for a primary with the 600,000 Republicans later, you're a betrayer, we will punish you. Mick got half that vote. Most electable regular Republicans do far worse than that. Now we're going to take the battle to the 640,000 rank-and-file Republicans in a primary, and I think Mitt is well-positioned to do well if he keeps working as hard as he is to make a case. Yeah. A lot of Republicans might say that Trump is strengthening his party because they're winning and he won. You obviously disagree. So at some- We haven't won anything meaningful since the day we won the presidency. We've lost special election after special election, even in places like Alabama, where it's almost mathematically impossible to lose. So I was over at the RNC the other day. I snuck in the back and I said, what's with the yellow carpet? They said, no, there's a lot of dead canaries. We had to do something with them. Uh, so there, there is no winning. Okay. There is no winning. Right. But again, this is all talk till the next election. Yeah. That's what counts. Yeah. Mark, I have a question for you. Sure. What's up with the Democrats? It seems, at least when I check in on Twitter or on the Internet, they just can't stop fighting each other. Uh, there was, gosh, a few weeks ago where literally it seemed all of liberal Twitter was arguing over the true definition of the word neoliberal and who was that and who was not. And it was just so academic and, like, out of touch with reality. Do Democrats have their ducks in a row no they never have never will right you know i've worked for uh, 15 years in democratic politics and then 15 years in republican politics and just just long enough to realize how both were screwed up okay uh but 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 how they're both different too and and the democratic party the problem that they constantly have over and over again is that they're a party of a thousand constituencies and they try and make everybody happy and you see that in campaigns all the time, the national ones particularly, where they just they try and please everybody and end up pleasing no one. And they can't get a clear, focused message communicated because, you know, they're trying to please the labor unions, they're trying to please, you know, this, that, everybody. And uh, the, the, what happens is the message gets splintered and diffuse and it's not coherent or understandable. Does anything so change that? It's so true. They, they love their own internal trial. I, I was at dinner last night with a bunch of nice liberal Democrats. 
And of course, they all want to straighten me out, like, you know, <laughs> and they give me the pat on the head like Lord Greystoke. Hey, he appears to know how to use a knife and fork in a Republican. <laughs> Where'd y'all go eat? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, no, such table manners in a, in a jungle savage Republican. <laughs> but anyway, they started all yelling about Mitch McConnell ought to be in jail and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, Mitch I'll... McConnell will outlast them all, first yes, of all. He, he is a will. smart operator. Yeah, they could use one. Uh, <laughs> And then I just got tired of it, so I said, well, my big question is, who's worse, corrupt Hillary Clinton or Bernie the wackadoodle liberal? And then they broke into a huge fist fight, the three Bernie now, people. why would you start a fight like that? And then they spilled out into the hallway, nine squad cars, and they forgot all about beating the Republicans. And I thought, You're this funny. is what we do every time, because it's so much fun it's so easy. They never get behind a rational But plan. you know what, though? For all of the Democratic infighting that has been a part of that party for a long time, you have a charismatic candidate like Barack Obama come along and they get in line behind the charisma. Is all that the, that the Dems are lacking right now is a charismatic figurehead? I think it's more than that. Their, their problem is Trump underperformed in some of the Republican suburbs. But in working America, when Trump was talking about bathroom rights, excuse me, Hillary was talking about bathroom rights and identity politics, guys swinging hammers in Michigan, my home state, in Detroit, my home city, bending metal for a living didn't see anything for them. And they, they voted for Trump in record numbers, votes that normally she would have gotten a big hunk of. I'm talking about white middle class voters. Yeah, yeah. People who feel the economic fear. And he ran the grievance campaign to give them something to be mad about. Blame it all on people tunneling in from Mexico or shifty Asian trade negotiators with their Fu Manchu trickery, all the racial stuff he had. Well, that's the thing. You, like, but Hillary like, wasn't giving them anything to yeah. believe in other than she's going to get deeply involved in who can go into what bathrooms in North Carolina. And that was identity politics. Just, Democratic base love it. Well, we Trump can't did, have enough of that Trump stuff. Trump did his own kind of identity politics. And he I, did. And I'm also glad that you followed up your first statement of economic anxiety with the phrase racial politics because it was No, he that. did. I've accused him of that publicly a zillion times. But Hillary left didn't open any door to people who really make their livings w with their hands in industrial America, and Trump scooped them all up and he beat her. Well, so, okay, so then both of you are kind of basically saying there's a good chance Democrats take the House, in which case everything changes. Well, Trump can do a lot less, and there could be some impeachment stuff happening. And the Republicans have something to be against, though. You know, yeah. every big turn has multiple yeah. outputs. Yeah. Mark? I will say, though, it you know, it is what, we're in April? And, we are in April. Uh, you know, the economy's doing pretty well. I think we got the lowest unemployment rate and highest uh, consumer confidence and, you know, progress in North Korea. We get to the fall and people are feeling better about their pocketbooks and there's a little less crazy in the administration and things are kind of tamped down a little bit. And, you know, that equation could change. And there, I mean, there's probably a, maybe a chance that Americans, some Americans start to feel that the tax cuts are helping or hurting them. If they feel their wages going up. It I mean, I agree with Mark. We don't know for sure. But one of the interesting things about politics now is while the unemployment statistics are essentially full employment mm -hmm. historically and low, mm -hmm. when you ask people on polling what the number one issue is, yeah. they all say jobs in the economy because they feel their wages are too low. Well, they haven't had a raise yeah. in real purchasing power in 15 years. Well, also the current president spent the entire campaign saying the economy was awful. So that message might have stuck. To some extent. I People need to feel it in wages. People are working harder for less than the middle class, and that's a problem. So the great economy thing hasn't resonated. But as Mark says, there's time. The economy is growing. That's generally good for wage markets. It drives up cost. The Korea thing is tricky. I think the president is going to get rolled. But we're seeing. And uh, the future is uncertain, so you got to watch the circus to watch it unfold. <laughs> Look at you. Very nice. Nice. So, and selling tickets here. <laughs> well, last question. Uh, there was this uh, really interesting scene in the second episode where y'all are talking about Stormy Daniels. And you interview my friend Jen Palmieri, who I had on this show a while back about her book. And she was talking about kind of what to watch to see where things are headed. And she said, you look at the turnover in Trump's lawyers. When lawyers leave and leave and leave and leave, it's a sign that they know something bad or something worse is coming. And I found that quite interesting, and I hadn't thought about it that, that way before. So I want to ask the two of you, for the layperson out there trying to read some kind of tea leaf to see what's going to happen next, what are the tea leaves to watch? Well, the biggest tea leaf is, you know, what's happened. My sense is that, uh, you know, kind of the heat on the Mueller deal is kind of de-escalating just in the sense of the... You can, and you can read it in Trump's body language. He doesn't seem to be as concerned. He's not harping now. I mean, it's not all that kind of 
rattling that we heard about firing everybody in the Justice Department. But the big thing now is the private attorney. And just you know, imagine the private attorney of Donald Trump, much less the president of the United States, all the things that he's seen in the transactions. Yeah. I mean, if my lawyer, I mean, I'm a nobody, but if my private lawyer were... I'd be worried. Yeah, I'd yeah. be worried. I mean, you know, anybody would be. And so if, if, if especially if your life's as complicated as Donald Trump's is... Yeah, that's the big Shakespearean finish if life does imitate art, that the... Mm the cleanup mop and shovel lawyer flips, which is maybe in his interest. His legally. people have already been saying he might flip, right? Yeah, yeah. Well Trump is more about destroying everybody's life around him because loyalty is given and none is rewarded and Trump is ethically blind, so they all get in trouble. Ask inmate four two five seven Manafort, you know, who's heading Oy. for all kinds of legal I hadn't thought about him for a few days. With, with the lawyers, I agree with Mark, I'd also say the problem is it's not like they're fleeing Trump because they think he's guilty. These, these guys do well by running toward guilty. But Trump is impossible to work with. He won't take yeah. advice. He won't listen. There are no two-way conversations. I'm kind of an expert on Trump's management him? style. I have met him, but briefly. He, okay. um, but I'm producing a movie about Trump. And, really? And uh, I've interviewed a lot of executives who've worked with him. Mm-hmm. And they're all one-way conversations. He, he paces the room you. and talks at you and leaves. And if you're a lawyer trying to give him counsel, like, don't tweet that, or this is in your interest, <laughs> yeah. I have to defend your interest, and he just throws the sandwich at you and walks out of the room, you don't want to be his lawyer because yeah. you can't do anything. Yeah. What tea well, leaves are you watching right now, the, Mike? Let me just say one thing okay, about yeah, Michael Cohen before you say that, Michael, which is, you know, he said that he'd take a bullet for the president. He just didn't say it'd be a rubber bullet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, most people who say that, with the exception of sworn agents of the Secret Service, easier to say than yeah. do. Listen, I'm not uh, taking any bullets for anybody. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I, uh, I commend that's a good uh, strategy. So I'm watching Jarvanka. Uh, where have they been? There's legal jeopardy there. Um, They've been laying low. Yeah, they, reason too. So this investigation is like a billion-watt electron microscoped into, into Trump's life. I don't know what they're going to find and. I think, I know people who have sworn to me they've seen Trump perjure himself in other legal things, and that's why his own lawyers won't let him testify under oath. So there's trouble in Trump land because of the the culture of it over time. And that gets into the family, that gets into the sons, that gets into the son-in-law. And so there may be ultimately more legal jeopardy there, and that could be leveraged on Trump too. Yeah. You know, not, yeah. not continue with politics. But again, all crazy speculation right now. Yeah. You know what my favorite tea leaves are? Yard signs. They oh. still count for something. I'm talking about the election. Let me tell you terms. a dirty trick about that. <gasps> People plant yard signs? McKinnon knows this. We always find out when the media is coming in to cover the yeah, campaign put yard signs. what roads you take from the airport and we pay for You have signs. just. I know. You've just crushed my soul. There's gambling in the casino, no. man. Well, on that note... There's a new thing to look for thanks to Donald Trump. Hats. <laughs> ah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Oh, man. This was really fun. Thank you. I want to thank you guys. Thank you. Uh, for talking you, with me and being so open. I'm not thankful for you uh, for opening my eyes to the dirty secret truth of yard signs. You'll never look at a yard sign. The same never. Thing. But I am glad we had this conversation. It was super fun. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Special thanks to Mark McKinnon, co-host of The Circus on Showtime, and also Mike Murphy, Republican strategist. And one more reminder, seriously, come hang out with me in Chicago. It's one of my favorite cities. We're going to have a great time. WBEZ.org slash events for a live show with special guests and funness. Funness is what I'm calling it. In Chicago this May 15th. All right, WBEZ.org slash events. Okay, we are back in your feeds on Friday with our weekly wrap of the news and culture and everything else. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.